Hello and welcome to another episode of the Board Game Shenanigans Podcast, where we review the games we've been playing and discuss board game related topics. My name is Bob. And I'm Natasha. This week, Natasha and I are going to be reviewing a capstone game, Wandering Towers. It's a game that I picked up at Origins. And then we are actually going to be reviewing an old spiel winner, which is going to be Camel Up. Is it Camel Up or Camel Cup? It's Camel Up, right? Yes, it's Camel Up. It's Camel Up. That's what it says in the rules. The OG cover does not do a very good job of distinguishing that. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but they have the big C and then the Camel, Camel, and then it almost looks like Camel Cup. It does. It totally does. But it is labeled camel up on bgg so i don't know how much more official we can get i don't think we can get any more official than that before we get into any reviews i do want to bring up that i i had a chance to play the lost code which is a deduction game that natasha uh talked about a few episodes ago and she reviewed that um and it was one i was actually interested in it was a deduction game that i was like hmm piqued my interest well i got a chance to play it I really enjoyed it. I really <laughs> liked it quite a bit. I was really surprised how much I enjoyed that game. You did, and you figured out the whole the whole code. You got every number right. Yeah, like three turns left to go. At that point, it was it felt good because then I was just like scoring, trying to score as much many points as I could. Mm-hmm. But it's hard because the dials go to uh, whoever's in last place. So if you're gonna have the dial, then you might end up getting. Uh, the first, the person that's furthest behind is going to get the one that scores the most amount of points. Like I wanted the one that was just like a single number or the two number where you could just constantly score five points. I never got a chance to get it just because I was at that point I was ahead. Yeah. So I never got that dial, which uh-huh. kind of sucked. But regardless, figured it out. Felt good. I felt smart. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad you liked it. I kind of figured you would. Yeah. It's a good one. It's it's more about earning points. You you got to figure it out, and sooner you figure out, the more you can earn points. But it's really more about earning points than solving the code. Yeah, the the code for itself is very much like a math puzzle, which I really like. I really like those kinds of types of puzzles, so that makes sense why I enjoyed this particular game. But uh, I said I was interested in it. Said I wanted to play it. I did it. I played it. I liked it. I'm curious to see the crappy cardboard components at some point just to kind of compare them, but those... Oh, you won't, I won't be able to show them to you. I threw them all away. <laughs> just, yep, yeah, nope, don't need them. I threw up because I got, okay, I got the original box and then I and then the box that the fancy components came in, the upgraded ones were in a bigger box with an insert and I was like, I don't need any of that. So I threw away the, I didn't want to keep the big box because I, it said on there, this is not a game. So if I ever were to resell it, I want it to be in the the game box cover so i threw mm-hmm. all, all the insert away i threw the whole box away threw all the crappy pieces away and put everything in the the small box those components though for the kickstarter version those looked good those they had a nice feel to them mm-hmm. i like those little plastic uh holders the even the the numbers on it i thought were really really nice the score tracker was like you said a little meh wasn't great but Still, for the most part, solid game. I enjoyed it quite a bit. So, well, good. All right, let's talk about Wandering Towers. This is a memory hand management game designed by Kramer and Kingsling and art by Michael Menzel, published by Capstone Games. In Wandering Towers, players are graduating wizards trying to get to Ravenkeep Castle before other students get there. So, in this game, players are going to be trying to be the first wizard to assemble all their meeples in Ravenwood while also filling up their potion bottles in the process. First person that can do both wins the game. 
So at the start of the game, there's going to be a circular path with nine towers on it. These towers will be where the players will start with their meeples. So each player will start a turn with three cards in their hand. These will either move a student or move a tower. When you move a student, you simply move it that many spaces. When you move a tower, you do the same thing, move it that many spaces. But the catch is you can move a tower onto another tower, trapping other wizard meeples under it. When you trap a wizard, even your own, you get to fill one of your potion bottles. So that's how you'll be filling your potion bottles throughout the game, which helps you get closer to winning. But there is also special spell tiles during each game that you can use with the earned potions to activate those spells during the game. Honestly, that's pretty much the game. You're going to keep taking turns, playing a card, playing two cards from your hand, drawing back up to your hand size, and the first person to accomplish that wins. There is one uh, major rule. If you touch a tower and you move it, you have to continue moving that tower because part of this game is the memory aspect of trying to remember where exactly your meeples are under which castle piece. So the first person to accomplish that wins. And so what I think I really like about this game is the, kind of the fun back and forth it provides. It's a simple game, but I still think it has some fun, interesting decisions with playing those cards. Some of the cards allow you to roll dice multiple times maybe and allows you to move that so you can almost, you know, spend a couple potions to move this, play this card to move this tower, then you can play this card to move a meeple into the into Ravenwood so or Ravenkeep. It has just this nice kind of like balance of putting together these little combos, but still entertaining and kind of trapping other wizards. It's just fun. It's been it's a fun game to play. Yeah, it's light and breezy and and fun and and it, it's got a little memory part to it and a little puzzliness where you're trying to line up the castle. You try to move the castle as much as you can and then move your meeple into the you know the exact same spot, the exact spot you need to be. But then that tower always constantly moves as soon as somebody, you might set yourself up and then as soon as somebody gets their uh, wizard in there, then it moves to the next spot. So now you got to go further. So it's kind of wild and, and, and random. And if you like uh, heavy strategy games, this is, this is definitely not heavy nor strategy. It's very whimsical and, ooh, let's see what happens. And you, you're not going to take itself seriously. But I can see it being a lot of fun for kids, especially covering up parents' meeples and and that's kind of fun and moving moving your little people around it's a cute little game i say a cute little family game i agree it doesn't have the weight that you normally expect from capstone games you know capstone Mm -hmm. for the most part at least the games that i've played from them typically are heavier they have a lot more strategy they're more in depth they have a lot more rules heavy this game is not that it is it is very simple you play a card, you move a couple things like you like you said, 100% family weight game, but it's fun. I think it's in it provides an interesting balance of being simple enough that, you know, families can play it with younger children. But I think there's still enough decisions where a person who's a gamer can still have fun with this game. Mm-hmm. The thing is when you're when you're playing at least for me, this is my perspective on playing like kids games, a lot of times I'll get bored, I guess, for lack of a better term, because they're just not engaging, because they're just so simplistic. Mm-hmm. So for me, You're not making it, any it, good decisions, I think, right? That's exactly, the or meaningful, or their the decisions are extremely light. They're not, you know, tactical. They're not, you know, they're not in depth decisions. They're very obvious. Yes, exactly. So for me, it, it it's tough because I'll I'll play, you know. I'll play these games with, you know, my daughter and and she'll be like, let's play again. Let's play again. I'll be like, I can only handle so many play agains. 
<laughs> yeah. Until like I'm just like, all right, this is it's it's not. Let's move on to something else. That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But this game, I think, kind of bridges that gap. Or games like this, I think, bridge that gap where it's simple enough rules that you know my eight year old can play this game and be just fine. You know, cover up dad's meeple, cover up mom's meeple, cover up brother's meeple. Still have fun doing that, but it still provides enough decision making for me as an adult that I, I'm still engaged during the course of play. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes a good game for families is it's simple enough for kids to play, but still provides some complexity for adults to enjoy themselves as well. Yeah, I think this game would really replace like something like Sorry. You know, where you're moving around the board, you got a couple choices, right? You can move either one of these little pawns. This is a much better version of that style of game. It's not anything complex. You know, if you're an adult and you only play with adults, I wouldn't recommend picking up this game, you know, for adult night unless you've, you know, got people that really like these lighter style games. But this would be what I would recommend instead of like your basic sorry, right? Yeah. We played it at game night. I brought it and... We played it with adults, and they all seem to enjoy it. It goes up to six, which is nice, too. So it mm-hmm. can almost be, you know, party game-esque, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, you know? I think it'd be a good, it's a good filler party game for game night. It wouldn't be, you know, I doubt anybody's chomping at the bit to play it again and again, but it was fun. Yeah, I think if if it's brought to game night and you need a game that plays up to six, I think I think adults can enjoy this just as well. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to give it a six. I, I enjoy it quite a bit, but I, I don't know that I, w- I would ever seek it out to play it. You're just giving this game a six, huh? Mm. Mm-hmm. No, no bueno. I'm giving it an eight. <laughs> I, re- <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I don't know. It's just, like I said, certain, those, some of those simple games that people come out, like King Domino, you know, Downtown Farmer's Market, they're pretty simple games that you're just trying to do these little things with. Something like that kind of fills that itch for me where I, where I still am engaged enough playing it with again kids that it rates pretty high for me i i enjoy the game quite a bit i think i think if you like family weight style games if you like those kinds of games this is a good one honestly i'm surprised it wasn't nominated for the spiel it was out in germany last year and just with the overall you know simple rule set family weight i i would have expected it to be part of that conversation Um, i feel like we've been saying that a lot lately we've been comparing a lot of things but I think, you know, families are really going to enjoy this game. I think it bridges a gap, like bridges that gap, like I said. So, yeah, I think this is a good one. And that is uh, Wandering Towers. All right. Next up, I want to talk about Camel Up. So Camel Up is a betting game. It's designed by Stefan Bogan and art is by Dennis Lohausen and Chris Qualams. It's uh, been published by quite a few publishers. So you're trying to earn the most money by betting on the camel that's going to be in first or second place each round and then also betting on the camel that's going to win the race and the camel that is going to come in last place. On your turn, you could either place a bet or you can move the camels. Each camel has an associated die that matches it. Each die goes from one to three. All the dice are in a shaker. So you shake it up and let one dice fall out. Then you move that camel that matches that dice that many spaces. Once all the dice are out, that ends that leg of the race and those that made a bet get their payout or if, or if you lost, then you have to pay him. And then the race continues, you know, continues and you have multiple legs until one of them crosses the finish line. So you really have no control over what camel wins. You don't have your own camel or anything, but if the camels are in the same place, they they stack on top of each other if they're in the same spot. And when any of the camels move, they always take the camels above them. 
and it's always the camel on top that wins. So once some of the dice are out, you have a decent idea of who's going to win. What makes this game so popular is how easy and quick it is to play, but also just the the wild, unpredictable fun of it. There's nothing serious about this game. It's just just fun, quick, breezy, little race to see like, oh, hope, I'm, I'm going to bet on this and I'm going to cheer for it and hope it wins, but you really don't have a whole lot of control over which one wins. And that's that's kind of the game. That, yeah, you don't really have a ton of control. You can put your little tile down to affect movement slightly. So sometimes you're playing the odds, like you can put your little tile down and it either goes back a step or forward a step. But aside from that, yeah, you're just kind of hoping for the best when you're doing, when you're playing this game. You try to make the decision as quickly as you can with the limited amount of information. It's a fun, quick game. It won the spiel in 2014. Yeah. So it won the spiel in 2014. So you know it's a family weight game. Um, I think at first glance, you think it's a racing game. But it's definitely not. You're just trying to hedge your bets on what, which one you think is going to win or which one you think is losing. So sometimes chaotic. And I think it's also fun that the camels like stack on top of each other. So if you have white on the bottom, then yellow, then blue, and you draw the white die, then it just moves all the camels on top of it. I think that's a cool concept. It's very similar in concept to Wandering Towers. When you move a tower with a bunch of stacks on top of it, you kind of move them. So they have a similar feel in that regard. But yeah, it's a it's a fun game. Yeah, I, uh, Jeremy brought it because he knows how much I like Ready Set Bet, and it does kind of remind me of that. Just the wild silliness. It's not real time like Ready Set Bet is real time betting, which is fun. This is you you know you kind of go in turn order, but it was an, it was enjoyable to play. I think this is a, another really great family game where there's just not a lot of high stakes. There's not a lot. There's not a lot of like control about what you can do, but you, but you do get um, you can hedge your bets. So you know like there's only two die left, and you know, they're also on your turn. I didn't say you can place a tile out on the board that if a camel lands on it, you get a coin and then it either you choose one side or the other, either it'll go forward or it'll go backwards one space. So, you know, if, as long as that camel, you roll like the blue, like two or three, you're good. That one's definitely going to win. But the green, you know, could win if you, if the blue rolls one. And so you, you're hedging your bets a little bit, but by then you kind of got a decent idea. It was fun and it played, um, it played well at like six or eight what is it, six people? Yeah, we played it with six, yeah. I think it goes mm-hmm. up to eight, actually. I think there's yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. And then you you want to bet first because the first person to bet on the camel that wins or loses gets the most money. Um, so you want to put your bet in there first, but you, you want to get a little bit of information. So making that timing right is, is good. It's just, it's another one that's just, just good fun. You know, there's yeah. not nothing yep. serious about it. It's a lot of fun, plays a lot of people. It's quick, it's short, it's easy. It, it really belongs, like, it is a spiel winner. I get it, and it belongs at Target, and everyone should just own it, you know, or just to have to play with their family. It'd be a great Christmas gift for your family. Yeah, it's definitely one of those games that I think families can enjoy. It falls into that bucket, like I said, that there's enough decisions for gamers to still have fun, but you're also not taking it too seriously. It's a game that you're just kind of seeing what happens. You're making bets. Sometimes you make a bet ahead and you lose. Oh, you know, haha, Bob lost, you know, whatever. No big deal. Mm-hmm. And it plays up to eight. It's, yeah, fun little game. I do have a question for you since this is, you definitely like artwork. Which version do you like better? The first edition Camel Up or the second edition Camel Up? Uh, the second edition looks nicer, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I like the second edition. The first edition just looks a little dated. I don't know. Is it your boy Clemens Franz? I bet it, bet you it is. 
No. The second edition? <laughs> no, the Could first. Be. No, I said who the art- artist was. I will say overall the aesthetic of second edition looks nicer, except for the box cover. The box cover on second edition, old boy with his little tiny mustaches and his little like hat or whatever. I don't know. I'm not feeling that. He's a little creepy. But and he has that like side eyed stare at you. Mm, not sure but if, how I feel. The camels about this are kind of goofy on the first one. So I, I like the second edition box cover, even with a creepy guy on it. I wouldn't say they're they're goofy. They're just uh, they are goofy. It's fine. They're goofy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the camels look a little bit better. You do get a better like dice manipulator, because the one in in the original game, you have a like a rubber band and it's like cardboard. So you shake it up and you drop it and then do that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a it's a a little bit better because it looks like it's plastic. Although you have, do you have a cardboard tree in this? You do. Why? You don't need that. Throw that it's away. Like the tr- it's just like the tree. Would you? Would you throw that away? Yeah, absolutely. With all my Legos at the bottom of the trash can. Oh my god, that uh, the Legos thing. I'm. You need to save those Legos that you're throwing away. It drives me crazy that you toss them. No, I'm not going to. They're going to continue going in the trash. Stop. Like, what do I need to do to get you to just save them for me? Like, what do I got to do? Come over to my house and steal all my Legos so that they're no longer in the house. Would your kids be upset by that? No, they don't even play with Legos. They they get Legos for Christmas or birthdays and they build it and they put it together and they never play with it again. They're supposed to be display pieces sometimes. I'm just saying. Yeah, they, we do. We, we put them out for display, but they they break and then they yeah. I just find I find pieces everywhere. I don't know how they hardly play with Legos. I don't know why I'm finding Lego pieces everywhere in my house. Here's the deal: the next time I come over, I'm just gonna say which Legos can I have, and I'm just gonna scoop them up. I have a dresser full of Legos. I will dump the whole dresser into a bag, a big Santa bag, and I'll bring it home. You'll need a couple. That's fine. I'll take them all. Yeah, I'll I'll make sure the trunk's empty. Next time I swing by. <laughs> God getting rid of those legos anywho back to camel up um so what are you gonna rate this game i rated a seven i like it quite a bit uh i think there's some wildness with the timing like you you can be in a really good position like next turn like you get some good information it's your next turn so you can be the first to bet you know so it's a little swingy and wild that way but it's fine because it's so light who cares i i enjoy it quite a bit so it's coming at a seven for me i am also going to come in at a seven i enjoyed it a decent amount as well I will say turn order does sometimes matter quite a bit. I know in the game you and I played, you know, with your son, Jeremy and everyone, I got a bunch of information and I was able to put, uh, you know, bet on who was going to be last and bet on who was going to be first, the first on both of those. And the person behind me did the same exact thing. And that's the reason why I won is because I was first to that. Mm-hmm. Had he been first to it, chances are he probably would have won that game instead of me. So it's kind of one of those like when do you get the information to make your make your wagers and make your bets. So yeah. in that regard, yeah. I am curious because they have somewhat similar feels just with like moving the stuff around with, you know, the towers and the camels and stuff. Why would you give Camel Up a seven as opposed to Wandering Towers giving it a six? What separates like, the two? I like the betting wildness of it. I like that you can be the underdog and still win. You know, where sometimes in Wandering Towers like you're you're there, you're almost there to your in front of your tower, but yep. you just don't have the cards to get your character in the tower. So all you do is like, I guess I'll just move stuff around and hopefully it'll be in the right position. So I think a little bit of the the cards that you get with a wandering tower like just don't line up in the way you need them to. 
Sure. Okay. So there's nothing you can do on your turn. Where this is just as wild, like if you're going to, you know, if it's going to be your spot at the table, like, you know, you're going to get the information first that you can bat first or, or I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's a, it's, it's just a swingy where like you can win or lose, but I think it's just a little bit more fun and exciting and, and there's still an opportunity to win. Sure. All right. Yeah. Makes sense. So that is Camel Up. Definitely worth checking out. Great family game. All right, so those are the games we are reviewing this week. We are going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to be diving into board game mechanics again, part four, question mark? Yeah, yeah, it's four. So we'll see you right after the break. All right, welcome back. We're going to finish our discussion about board game mechanics. Uh, We... Obviously, I'm not getting through all of them, but just some of our favorite ones or interesting ones or more popular ones, I suppose. We're going to continue the discussion talking about board game mechanics, uh, what we like and dislike, and some games that are associated with them. Let's do it. First up, I have everyone's favorite. This is universally loved. The roll or spin and move. Spin that spinner uh, and then move your person around. Think yeah. light, you know. Yeah, I it's yeah, flip it's my and, favorite. Flip and move. I'd say flip and moves are in there too. Um yep. Yep. It's sorry right up there with uh Monopoly. Uh, you know what? Camel up is really a roll and move game. But it's not your piece, which is, makes it interesting. The difference too is Camel Up is a betting game. It's not necessarily a race game. It's not like yeah, you're yeah, racing yeah. to these different spots or whatever, but oh man, roll and move. I don't know. It when was the last time you played a roll and move, spin and move type game that you're like, wow, this is fun? Well, ones that you have choices, right? You roll the dice and you're going to choose which character to move because you've got multiple choices. That's yes. that's a roll and move. You know, that that can be fun. A spin and move, never. The spinner needs to die. Yeah, you just, yeah, it can't even, you just flick it. Yeah, no, they just never work. They break, they're, they, they're lopsided, you could you can fudge them. Bad, bad, bad. Uh, yeah, there's not a lot of great roll and move games, but there's definitely a very popular mechanic in mass market games. I think the concept of roll and move when it relates to a game like Monopoly, Sorry, uh, Aggravation, that sort of thing, it's it's simplistic, right? You roll and then you just you have very limited choices on what you're going to do. You maybe move a couple pieces. That said... You have a game like uh, Thunder Road Vendetta, the new one by Restoration Games. And I had a chance to demo this at Origins. And something like this stands out to me because you roll four dice and you have to move three of your vehicles based on those dice. That's not any different than a roll and move. Like you well, roll the dice and based on the dice, you you can move that many spaces. But there's the thing is, like you said, the decisions. Yeah. Like, am I going to move this into this car? Some spaces require additional movement, that sort of thing. So that would be more modern roll and move version that is done differently, I suppose. Yeah, it can be done well. It's just not done very often. Well, it's done very yeah. often mass market, not well. But I like, like, I always liked Sorry to play Sorry when I was a kid because, because you would you have choices, right? You've got those four pawns that you're moving around. So I always try to get one out that just moves around the board. That's my one I'm always going to move until I can. And then I get one out. If I only get one out, that one sits out until I get that seven where I can go backwards. You know what I mean? So I've got some choices and I'm, yeah, I'm waiting a while for that seven to come up, but at least my pawn is there ready to go and I can move the other one until I get the card I need. 
you know, that's that was always fun for me. That's interesting because I don't think that's the style of play that you're normally accustomed to. You're more of a, I'm going to do the safe route. That right there, you the way you described it, that's like your son Max, that's how he would play. He would just try to like just get that big finish like right away. Yeah, but I've got I've got at least one pawn out there that I can move around that will go around the whole board, so that way before I draw my seven, you know, but I always have to have one sitting there because I'll draw a seven eventually. Mm. You know this. You know you've gone downhill on the board game podcast when you're describing strategies in the game of Sorry. I know, and then you get those <laughs> games where you just cannot draw like a what is that a one or a two where you can get out. You know. Yep. And you Ugh. just sit. You just sit. <laughs> Terrible game. Uh, so much fun. Sign me up. So bad. All right, All next. Right. All right, Rondell. This is Bob's favorite. Bob loves a Rondell. Ron- Bob, why don't you go ahead and describe a Rondell? All right, so a Rondell, for the most part, is you're constantly moving forward. You can never move backwards. So you can move up to some do it like as far forward as you want, or maybe you have a specific amount of moves, like think Maracaibo, has it, uh, Great Western Trail has it, those that have the specific movement restrictions. You have a game like Heaven and Ale where there is no restrictions, you can move as far forward as you want. And you're when you move, you get to do something, whether that is an action, whether that is picking up a tile, you know, specifically in those two examples that I kind of talked about. And then you're just constantly moving forward, and then a lot of times you'll reset, and then you're going to do the loop again. So really, it's that the tension that you get from when do I make my move to the thing that I want? Like how long can I like sit back and continue taking these actions until it's so important for me to like make that way forward. I think of a game like heaven and ale, there's specific spots where you can activate the different tiles on your player board. And those tile, those are typically lucrative. So how quickly do you force the issue to take those? Cause as soon as you take it, then the next one, somebody's just like, well, I need it. So I'm going to take the next one. They skip forward like 10 spaces. It's it's that tension and timing of when am I going to move forward? When am I not going to move forward? Like how quickly am I going to go? Am I going to push the end game? That sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So good. So good. It is so good. Yeah. I like. I also like rondelles where you just kind of have a little wheel and you're moving it around and like collecting resources, like kind of a smaller wheel. Not necessarily like in uh, Maracaibo or having a nail where your pieces are going along a rondelle. Sometimes rondelles are used for resource management. Think of like bingo where you can, you can, it's real simple. You just go to the next spot and that's how many resources you collect. Yep. I like them. I, I like them in all situations. They're just fun. Yeah. It's that the, the big thing for me is that timing piece and that in the, the tension and timing. That's what it is. Tension and mm-hmm. timing. Mm-hmm. You want to get one you want, but you don't want to waste turns. Yeah, it yeah, it stresses you out in all the right ways. Yeah, like what am I willing to give up in order to get to that spot? Well, I'm giving up everything before it. Is it worth it to give all that up to get that spot? Mm-hmm. Or are those other spots better off to get than this one thing that I really want? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. I, yep. Or maybe by the time I get to it, somebody will be out of there. But they might take yeah. the resource I want and have it in ale or limited resources. Oh, it just de- it depends on the game. It's all different and it's all good. And it just it it changes the way the game flows every single time when you're playing with players because everyone's gonna make that decision at the moment, and that decision affects ends up affecting your decision. Like I've played games of Heaven and Ale where I've stuck back and I've been halfway around the loop 
and people are already done and they're just waiting on me. So now I have my pick. Granted, I don't have the best that was left. I have all the scrap pieces, but they're all mine and I can take, I can go one at a time and pick them all up if I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. If you have the money to pay for it, but if I had, yes, I mean, yeah, you didn't. Yeah. You need the money, I guess, but still. (laughs) All right. Next up, I, I grouped all these together. Scenario slash mission slash campaign game. I don't know if they really like scenario slash mission goes together. I mean, I, I think scenario mission slash mission goes together. I don't know if they go with campaign very much, but we'll talk about it all together. I don't play a lot of campaign games. I think there's a definite distinction between at least the campaign and the other two. I, I think those two, like the Michigan or mission or scenario type play, they're, they're way more similar. Mm-hmm. Part of it is... Like you're trying to accomplish a specific task based on what the mission slash scenario dictates. This right. is how you, you win can the game. Re- repeat those same missions or same scenarios over and over. Right. Like you have different goals for each game. Each game you play you have a different goal. Well, and I think the other thing too is having a mission or scenario does not necessarily build in a narrative into your game. So take uh Mission Deep Sea as a prime example. Endeavor, uh, uh not Mission Deep Sea, Endeavor Deep Sea. Those you get specific scenarios to start each game, and the scenario dictates how you're gonna lay out the your um, tiles. Mm-hmm. Your when you when you search, it determines how what get what is gonna score at the end of the game. It also determines a track on the board that allows you to gain additional stuff, and each one of those is gonna play slightly different because you're you're scoring differently, you're building your you know map differently. But that does not create a narrative within the game. Typically, a campaign game usually is going to have some sort of narrative that's built across the length of the campaign. Take, you know, Maracaibo has a campaign element. I've played through it, and there's a story. You play through the cards, there's a story that's being told, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, any campaign game I'm thinking of, there's typically a story associated with it which is not the same as, you know, a mission or a scenario. Granted, you can have scenarios within a campaign, but they can they definitely feel different, at least in my perspective. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Either way, you're going to have like a play a different game each time. It's going to add variety and, and interest to the uh, what would otherwise be a, a very samey game or could be. And as we determined, you do not care at all about campaign games. No, I would play a campaign game. That's fine. I just don't care about the story. I just play a different game each time. So you don't care about the story at all? No, I mean, look, look think of like um, Crew. The Crew is my favorite game, one of my favorite games. And there is a story there. It is a kind of campaign based a little bit. You know, you're going through the whole storyline, but no, we don't mm, read it. That's weak. That's a weak story. We never even read it. How do you know? Have you read it? No. There you go. That, I don't consider that. I don't consider that a campaign game. I consider that those are specific objective scenarios, whatever Scenario. you want to call it. A, some, a mission-based game, yeah. A mission, yeah. That's your mission is to gain cards in this specific fashion, or sure. you know that sort of thing. I don't think that's a campaign. I think campaign is going to have a have an arching story. I can't think of any campaign games I've played, so I could be wrong. Maybe I love them. I love me a legacy game. But so it's interesting you bring that up because I think a lot of legacy games are considered can be considered a campaign game because mm-hmm. they're t- they're telling a story. I mean, take a look. You did, uh, you know, 
Clank Legacy, it had yep. a story. Pandemic, it had a story. All three of them had a story. I mean, granted, it it wasn't like a lot of reading, that sort of thing, but it still had a still had a story developed within it. Mm-hmm. Sleeping Gods, you know, campaign game has a story. So you've played them, you just haven't played like a repeatable campaign game. Sure. Yes. Yes. And and I, but I like the game part of it. The story I could take or leave. It's the game that I like. And the reason why I like the legacy ones is because it's fun to open up those packages and see what you get next. Ooh, what are we doing different? You know, that's fun. Ooh, what are we changing? What, what are we changing? What, about, what are we changing? Oh, my God. Were we ripping cards? What about Rise of Fenris? Oh, yeah. That's a campaign without being legacy. Or is it legacy? I wouldn't consider it legacy partly because it's not like you're changing. You're not cha- it's, a, it's an add-on, too. You know, it's an ex- expansion. Um. There was a lot of story text in that one that I didn't think was important, but was interesting if people cared. So taking a look at it, it's described as a campaign game. But in the same way, like a legacy style game where you're opening boxes and different things like that, you're doing that's the exact same thing you're doing in Rise of Fenris. Mm-hmm. You're unlocking content. Yeah. And that was fun. Yeah. It's not a I don't consider a campaign game or a legacy game. Because it's, there's no permanent changes. I think a legacy game specifically has permanent changes that you will not be able to take back. You rip a card, you put sticker on something, and it changes. Inevit- like, yeah. moving forward, this change is always going to be there. I think they've they've tried to make can- uh, legacy-style games like replayable after the fact. And I honestly would prefer you didn't. Yeah, I'd much rather just be able to play through the legacy you know, finish the story, be complete, and then be done. As mm-hmm. opposed to now having this my own version of the same thing. Like I don't know how often I would go back to it. I think I would it, rather just play through it again. Yeah, I agree. I, I I like Rise of Fenris is nice because at the end of it, you do have basically you just have an expansion that you can add in and play what if you want to. You know, yep. but other than that, it's 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 fun. It's short. The campaign itself is short, and it just adds more to the game. Yeah, it changes yeah. the game up in interesting ways. Hey, when we played it, who won overall? I can't remember. Uh, no, oh, it doesn't matter. Who won the most games? I'm pretty sure it was me. Oh. Who won overall? I think, I think some, it yeah, and all scoring was, was like really disappointing. That's all I remember. Like it I was like that seems like a weird way to score and finalize no. the winner, but that was yeah. all I really remember. Yeah, well, it's cuz you lost. That's the reason why you felt I, that way. Maybe. Yeah, you lost. I don't know. So, I think clearly for some something that, was wrong with the game. If I lost. <laughs> I disagree. That was my crowning right, achievement, on. beating you on the beating you in Rise of Fenris. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, felt All so right, good. S- next up, score and reset game. So this is a used terribly often. I'm thinking Guild of Merchant Explorer kind of does that. We score, we get a bunch of points, we like wipe the board clean except for like a couple things, and then you start over, kind of. You know? Yeah, sure. Hmm. It's not a mechanic that I'm I typically think about, you know? It's not a it's not a mechanic that normally like comes up when I'm just looking at games thinking about that sort of thing. I wonder what other games are involved in this. Oh, Love Letter. Lost oh, that makes Cities. sense. Yep. Jaipur. Yep. Basically you're doing stuff, you're scoring and you're getting points and then then you're replaying around. Resarcana's on there. I don't I don't think so. Ink and Gold. Mm. Yeah. So okay. Most of those games that you mentioned I actually like. You know, I like Jaipur, I like Lost Cities. Blue Lagoon. Um, 
Yes, that was actually one I was recently thinking about because then you you basically map out and then you try to score points on the second half of different things. It's almost like playing two games in one where the first game is a specific thing you're doing. The original original Uno is actually one of these style games because you're supposed to play with points. You score up all your points at the end of the... Whenever somebody goes out, you score up your points that you have left. You get minus points for all those. And then you replay another game and then whoever, you know, if somebody gets so many points, the game ends. Whoever has the most points loses. Whoever has the least wins. That's a What about even game. like Don't Llama Dice that we played? So every round you're scoring yeah. points and then you reset. Yeah. You're playing it again until somebody hits a certain number of points. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah, popular I... classic, classic mechanic. It's not one of the mechanics that truly stands out to me that I'm just like, ooh, I love this mechanic, but. I think if it's done well, it's it's interesting, and I do enjoy it. Yeah, you have a bad you have a bad round, maybe, but you can still come back. Just don't have another bad round; it'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right? Fair. That's you can only advice. afford one. You can only afford one bad round. I think Uno is much more interesting when you keep score because in classic Uno, when you're playing just one hand, like you're you're saving your um, you know, draw four wild card and all your all your reverses those are worth a ton of points so when you play keep score you want to get rid of those cards first and you keep your low you know you keep your lower numbers so you play a lot differently i think it's a lot more interesting of a game to play by the original rules because then if you if you've got like a three or four in your hand and somebody goes out no big deal you know you didn't just lose you only have three or four points you're basically zero three or four points is not zero but um i've never played uno that way I'm actually somewhat intrigued to try. Can you play Uno Showdown that way? I will never play Uno Showdown. It's a terrible, terrible game. I mm. do not recommend it. Um, You could play regular Uno. And then another fun way. Okay, this is the way you play Uno. You play it that way with the points. And then you also you play Speed Uno. So if anybody plays a card, if you have the exact same card, like let's say you play a Blue 2, then I can just cut in line and play my Blue 2. So one, everyone's playing really fast, which makes it better. You have to pay attention. It's got some kind of real time element into it where like if you're you're not, you know, guaranteed, you, you know, everyone's going to skip you if you're not paying attention because somebody has the same card. Good with large group number. And then this this is silly and this is optional. But if anybody plays a zero, you got to put a thumb on your your forehead. And the last one to do that has to draw a card. So it's just a fun way to play. You know, I remember doing that in, um, when I was a teenager. That was a really. I enjoyed playing that a lot. What's the deal with the thumb on the forehead? Where did that? I come have no from? idea that where like... that came from. But that was mm. just a fun little thing because there's Toss always rule. somebody who's not paying attention. You know, it's a <laughs> it's a fun way to play. It's a fun and engaging way to play a really basic, boring game. Same with sure. with uh, Connect Four, Speed Connect Four. You just play as fast as you can. You know, that's how I play with my kids when I was little. I just play as fast as I can, then that way they can beat me. It's another challenging way to play basic games. Anyways, or a, a way to make basic games a little bit more interesting and fun. It's just playing them faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then thumb on the forehead. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. It's like the not it thing. You put your finger on your nose. Not it. <laughs> yeah. It's fun. Sure. All right. Stand Next. Let's All right. Wait. Set collection. Set collection's like very classic, but it's also done in a lot of hobby board games and it's done well. So I think classic set collection is Rummy Cube, where you know originated from, or not Rummy Cube, Rummy. Sorry, and I played a lot of Rummy Cube as well. But it you see so that in Ticket seen, to Ride. Yeah. Uh, Ticket to Ride has set collection. I mean, it's just so many ways you can do set collection. 
Yeah, it's a it's definitely a fun mechanic. I think um, it's one of those mechanics that people don't think about in games anymore just because it's so universally adopted by so many games. I mean, you take a look at, you know, Board Game Geek and just going down the list of games that have set collection, Pandemic Legacy, Ark Nova, Terraforming Mars, Spirit Island, Great Western Trail, Seven Wonders Duel, Concordia, Clank. There's so many games that do this, that incorporate that mechanic that I think it's just, we almost take it for granted as a thing that just has always existed. Um, but I enjoy that it, there's something satisfying about collecting stuff and then creating a set of things specifically if it's when this card's like, we want these things. Okay. Now I'm searching for these things. And when I find them, I feel slightly better that, you know, I'm going to score more points because I've done that. I've accomplished this thing. This card wants me to do. Yeah, it's fun. And I, I think, I mean, I think it's just such a great mechanic that just works in so many things. It's just kind of basic now at this point. Yep. All right, I'll tell you my. This is my probably my least favorite mechanic, and that is storytelling. <laughs> I just yeah, I'm don't not interested, but it's very popular. D and D people love it. I get it. And yeah, didn't we talk about this last uh, couple episodes ago? Storytelling. Yeah, I should have. I should have moved it up with something. We had it with role playing. Maybe we talked about role playing. Yep. Oh yeah, we let we put storytelling in there. Okay, that was enough of that. Then let's move on. Take oh, that. I love, no, we can talk about storytelling some more if we want. I no. enjoyed storytelling. It's like, you know, it's my thing. It's my jam. Well, it's fine. All right. <laughs> Next one. Take sure. that. I dislike take that in almost every way. It depends. It depends. Okay, think, tell me a good take that mechanic. Oh, like in general, just the mechanic in general or just? A, a good time, a, a game that they use take that in a really good way. I think something like Wandering Towers has take that when you cover up people's meeples, making it slightly more difficult. No, because um, you're because you're doing that for yourself to fill up your potion, and, or because you need to move it. So, at harming people in the process of doing something for yourself, I wouldn't consider take that. Take that is is very much. I'm going to do something that only hurts you with the intent of just hurting you. I don't know though, because I think. I think there's more to it than that. I think that's the I think that's a simplistic version of something that can encompass more than just that. You know, you take take a look at games that are listed as take that. You got Terraforming Mars, Dune Imperium. You know, Terraforming Mars, you have those uh like rocket cards. Yeah. I dislike know? I dislike the cards in Terraforming Mars where you can take something from somebody else. Like I love Terraforming Mars. I think it's a great game, but those cards I don't like. So you I don't even like playing cards? them on other. I don't even like playing them on other people. I sometimes I draft them just so other people don't take them, but I almost never buy them and use them. Sometimes I will if I really feel like it's a good benefit for me. But yeah, I think it. I think it depends on the game. I think in certain instances something like that's fine. I think the worst. The worst is when you have a when you have a plan and you're going to do something, and then somebody has a card that says doesn't count. Like I hate that. I hate that. Even like Innis has that. Ugh. Yeah, the no, just kidding. Can't do that thing now. Yeah, you, you just don't get to do that. Like we're like, you know, at least if you're like kind of screwing somebody over, or I th- I don't mind it if it's like everybody loses something. You know, I don't mind that as much. Uh, mm-hmm. Libertalia is okay. Libertalia is a game that I enjoy. That's got a lot of take that stuff in it because the, the whole game is like trying to slash and you know you're just fighting each other trying to get the best loot. Like you're just stealing things, killing people. Fine. That I, I that's probably my favorite game with the take back mechanic yeah i th- for the most part the way i play i don't like take that 
I mm-hmm. I do agree. I think games will do it in certain instances that it's fine. I think there can be some take that in games, but and it's not going to be overly I don't think it's going to hurt the overall game. Yeah. But that said, inherently if it's just a game that's take that, I'm not a fan cuz typically I like to just do my thing. Most of the interaction is taking a spot that you wanted or blocking you from something else, that sort of thing. You can say in certain instances, that's, you know, take that, you know, Mm -hmm. in Gaia Project, taking that planet that, you know, you wanted Uh, in in theory, you can refer to that as take that. But I think I wouldn't consider that. No, I wouldn't consider it. Take that. I would just say, like, that's just you're just racing to be the first one to get there. Yeah. Opposed to like 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 Elysium is a game, a set collection game that I really enjoy. And there's one yep. set of cards that are very take that. You know, someone steals your money or whatever that is. They steal something from you. And I, I don't like it. I don't play with that set of cards. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I don't like having a plan and then somebody coming along and ruining it. By like, like if they take my card, they draft my card. That's, that's fine. That's like, I'm anticipating that. That's just the nature of drafting. Right. But like, if I'm like, okay, I have three money. I can do exactly what I want. Then somebody just takes one coin from me. I'm like, that messes up everything. It, the, it's funny that you bring that up because it uh, mirrors how you feel about uh, random events. Cause random events can do that. It can, you can, especially in like Kate may, you hated those events because they could be detrimental to just you. They could be just positive to me. There's, there was a range of different elements that way. And you don't like your plans being interrupted without you knowing that they're going to be interrupted. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I plan that. In a worker placement game, I know people can go to my spots. You know, in a drafting game, I and, you know the decisions are hard because I know these cards might not come to me or the cards in front of me. I'm like, okay, which one, which one do I think Bob wants the most? Then I'll take that one so that way I can get the other card that I want instead of the card that I want most, hoping that the other the card I want second most will still be available. You know what I mean? That's just the nature of the game. Sure. I see what you're saying. And I think take that encompasses slightly more than that. But yes, I agree with you 100%. I don't like that either. I don't like when somebody comes in and just trips me up and I didn't know that I was going to get tripped up. You know? And I especially hate that card that says, no, you can't. This Your turn's invalidated. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. I just That's such a cheap, cheap card to put in a game. Like, come you up sure with something about better that? than that. You yeah. sure about that? Yeah. You're not no. doing that. No. Yeah. That's just, it's just like not fun for the person who had that turn. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, yeah. I hate it. I don't yeah. like it. No, I get it. Yeah. Take the that. It's not, that it's not great. Like, no. Yeah. I'll take those cards out. All right. Well, let's move on to something more positive. Yay. Tech trees and tech tracks. Yes. I mean, does it get any better than tech tracks? Like moving up the tech tree or tech track, like you get, you get, you get, and then you get something better and then you get something better. And then you all of a sudden you've got something really, really good. It's amazing. I think like Kemet is my favorite. Kemet is your favorite tech tree game? Yeah. Hmm. What about Beyond the Sun? The tech tree of tech tree games. I do like that one. I mean, it is a tech tree game. Yes, I do. I do enjoy that one. It's like the one game that the entire game is focused around a tech tree. Like you have that Mm -hmm. little map where you're flying ships around, but that's not the focus. The focus is the tech tree. Yeah. Yeah, I love me a good tech tree. It get, it allows you to move up on tracks, and you know how much I love moving up on tracks. There's some satisfying just about like continuing progressing up something, and then unlocking new and cool abilities. If I get this thing, then I can unlock this other thing, which is even better than the thing I just unlocked. Mm-hmm. Sign me up. I love that stuff. And then a lot of times too, it gives you 
almost like unique player powers, which is another aspect that I really like in games is when you can do something that other people cannot. And typically in a tech tree game, take an example like Kemet. If you get the giant scorpion, you're the only one with a scorpion. You're the only one that has that. Yeah. You know, nobody else can get a scorpion. You, It's yours. There's a scorpion in that game, right? Yes, there right. is. And it's not even the best card. Like, I think like those level ones and level twos, they're all nice and they're cool. But then all of a sudden you get to like level four and those are all broken. You know, you got to get one of those because you're like guaranteed yeah. to win the game. You know, yeah, as the, long as they can know, be pretty busted. Yeah. Go for them. yeah, it's fun. And in all the fun ways, I think designers should design more straight up tech tree style games. You take something like Beyond the Sun again, like we talked about. It seems like it's the only one that the main focus is that tech tree. Everything else is secondary, where in a lot of games, the tech tree is secondary to what's going on on the map. You know? Yeah. But yeah, I love me a good tech tree. All right. Next up, I have another one of Bob's favorites track movement moving up the tracks just mm. tracks that you're moving up so of course planet unknown is one of our favorite track moving games there is yes. rise which is where you go up tracks that let you move up other tracks it's all tracks 100 percent tracks which is which is a good one i like that one yeah i mean you got games like coin bro that you're going up tracks it's yeah cora cora has the same feel to it it's just going yep. up tracks you know hitting those marks uh city of teotihuacan the one that you like? City of Teotihuacan? I don't know what it's called. I forget. Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan. Yes. See, I had the words in there. Yeah. You got there. You did it. Yeah, Good, no, job. Yeah. Good job. Good job, you. Track, that's a track one. I do like the tracks in that game. When tracks are done well that you can, you know, get to certain milestones and get stuff, those are the ones I really like. If you're just arbitrarily moving up something for no particular reason, I'm not as big of a fan. So something like Coimbra, like it is an example of a track movement game. I'm less thrilled about those tracks because a lot of it is just end game points. I think there's some other things attached to it, but anything that's more like a track that the furthest up is going to get so many points at the end of the game. And that's the only thing it does. I'm not cool with, but things that you can get throughout the game, like Teotihuacan is a good example because each of those tracks gives you something different. One of them will give you cocoa. One of them will give you resources. One of them will give you points. So it's almost if I move up, if I spend two cocoa, I can move up this track and potentially get three cocoa. And now I'm, you know, net positive on cocoa, which is exactly what I need for my next turn. So I can go to this spot because somebody else's dice is there. Those types of track movements that give you things, you know, planet unknown, you move up this track. It gives you, you know, the beach ball, which allows you to move up another track, which give you another beach ball, which can unlock a tech or it can move your rover. It can do a bunch of different things. Those little combos that you can do throughout Planet Unknown, I think, are really cool. So, yeah, Rondell with tracks. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna design a board game, and it's gonna be called the Rondell with tracks. <laughs> it's gonna be a Rondell that you. But go you gotta around give it a good theme because you like themes, so maybe you should name it something different. What What kind of theme would you Would you be interested in? I would have to do space. <sighs> Dumb. I like nature. I like science fiction, nature. Nature's um, outplayed. Hist- it's done. History. Ooh, do something historical. Do yeah. That hasn't been done before. Rondell with tracks. Coming to you 2026. <laughs> Check out the Kickstarter. <laughs> you can get deluxe minis. Do you need minis? No. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Someday. 
Uh, next, I have trick-taking. I love trick-taking games. I grew up on trick-taking games. You know, yeah. we are in the Midwest. We play a lot of Euchre. We played a lot of Hearts, a lot of Spades. And then, of course, there's a ton of hobby board games that are trick-taking. My One of my favorites is The Crew. Um, I don't know that I have played a trick-taking game that I didn't like. I mirror exactly everything you said. Trick-taking t- trick taking games are games I grew up with. I played with my parents. I played with friends. You say Euchre. Agreed, a hundred percent. I played so much euchre; it's ridiculous, just because we're from Michigan and that's like you know the game of games. So yeah, I love I love a good trick taking game. It just brings I, me back. I love you know winning tricks is fun, but my favorite thing to do in trick taking is to not get tricks. Skull King, we played a lot of Skull King this weekend. I love yeah. that. I love bidding zero and trying to get zero. I just think it's so much more challenging than always trying to get the tricks. And I, I don't know, it's just so fun. And I, I love trick-taking games where I can like actively avoid tricks. I always love spades for that reason. I think it's more interesting. I don't think Euchre is that terribly interesting, um, but a lot of them are. Agreed. I think my favorite memories usually of conventions or my favorite part of conventions, I should say, is it is the evening, 10 o'clock at night, there's not a ton of people in the game area. A lot of people have gone and you're sitting around with, you know, a group of people and you're playing trick-taking games. Origins two years ago was The Crew. We sat and played The Crew every night for at least an hour and a half, two hours. This Origins, this one we just had, was all about uh, Skull King. You know, playing Skull King and just bidding tricks and doing everything like that. There's just something about it that is such, it feels so positive to me playing those games and doing that because I've just it's that it's that nostalgia growing up on like this is what we used to do you know I remember being a kid my parents having friends over you know Friday Saturday night and me wanting to play you know hearts with them or play you know whatever some sort of trick-taking game with them and then when I finally was able to sit down and play trick-taking games with them I was like man this is awesome I just love them love mm-hmm. them. me too I'll always love all trick-taking games all right, next up, tug of war. Not a fan of tug of war. And, and uh, even like, okay, I I do like Seven Wonders Duel, but the tug of war you have with the war, the little literal war cards, is my yep. least favorite part. I kind of ignore it, which which means I lose that by that way a lot. So I just I don't like any kind of tug of war where it goes back and forth. I just I don't know why I don't like it. It just feels like I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this, and so you're just kind of stuck there. It almost feels like a tacked on thing that you just have to manage, right? Yeah. So in Seven Wonders Duel, okay, fine. You moved up the military track a little bit. You took my coins. All right. Uh, you know, that sucks. Okay. All right. Now I need to make my move for it to keep you in line. Yeah. I got to waste my turn just to, so that you don't whoop me by pushing me past that. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. I don't, a lot of two player games instill this mechanic. There's a lot of like push and pull back and forth. Mm-hmm. The new Star Wars deck building game, while it's combat based, there is this push and pull of, you know, being on the side of the force, which gives you benefits and different things like that. It's fine. I just don't. I, in a lot of games, they feel like it's just a it feels like an extra tacked on thing you have to just manage, you know? Yeah. I'd rather yeah. just focus on my game and getting the most points. <laughs> yep. Agreed. All right. Next up. I know you like this. Burial pull player powers and then i also added to combine with this roles with asymmetrical information so they're two different things so variable player powers like marco polo voyages of marco yep. polo the very different player powers that's always a fun thing 
almost always. Some people do complain. It does kind of lock you into a certain strategy, you know, but at least you're playing something different every time you have different powers. I think, yes, it, it definitely puts you in different strategies, but that's the thing that I think I love the most is this player power, you know, pushes me in this way that I probably wouldn't approach the game. You know, maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. That's what I love about playing different player powers is it makes me approach a game differently. And the thing I love the most is seeing how much I can exploit this power that I have. I love being able to do that. All right, this is, there's this power that I have. How can I take the most advantage out of this as I possibly can? Because mm-hmm. no one else can do it. So I might as well see like how I can exploit it the most I possibly can. Yeah, yeah. It, it does force you into a strategy that sometimes you don't want to do, but but that makes it a little bit more challenging and interesting. Then you've got roles with asymmetrical information. I think that's more in line with like maybe social, you know, social deduction games where you've got trader information or it could be could be like deduction style games where we all have different information, you know? I think that's I like that. Yeah, I think when I think most of that, I think deduction style games and you know that's not my cup of tea. So for those like I don't necessarily care too much about, but yeah, I don't know, variable player powers, sign me up. Love them. Love them. <laughs> what they need to do is they need to create games that are like Voyages of Marco Polo where they just seem completely broken. But yeah. everyone gets a completely broken thing. Yeah. That that's going to be hard to design. I imagine it is, but man, I love it. You get jealous over other people's and then you're like, oh, wait, I can do this thing, which is, you know, just as cool, if not better. Mm -hmm. It's fun. All right. Next up, I have voting. Uh, Mm. I think of Chicken Caesar is the most popular one I can think of that I play with a lot of voting in it. The Chicken Caesar, all you do every round, you just vote, 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 vote. Not my favorite mechanic. I typically don't like it. Um, I can't think of really any other games that I've enjoyed that have voting in them. Yeah, it's fine, I guess. I'm not, I don't care too much about voting games. Okay, that's that's enough. We know you can continue. Yeah, we don't like, yeah, I don't know what else to say about them. I'm not a, it's, it's similar to negotiation that it, you're always trying to manipulate somebody else to vote in a certain way. So in that regard, I just don't care for that. So mm-hmm. when you're specifically when you're trying to sway somebody's vote against you or for you or, you know, against another person, that sort of thing, it just yeah, I don't know. It's just not a I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'm not it, a fan. It, yeah, it's it's hard to how do you play that well? If you're doing well, people aren't gonna vote for you. So you gotta stay under the radar and then what, sweep in the last minute. I guess I just don't quite get the strategy. Yeah. All right. Last up here, we're in the very last one. All right, what do we got? Worker placement, and then I also included uh, dice workers, different types of workers, you know, dice placement. I think this has got to be the most popular mechanic, right, in hobby board games? Yeah, it's got to be. I remember when I first got into the hobby, it was my favorite mechanic. I loved it. Yeah. I loved the worker placement. That tension of who's, are you going to take my spot? Is it going to be open? When do I make my move to this spot? You know, provides that little bit of tension that, you know, we've, We've talked about how much we enjoy. Mm-hmm. It's not a mechanic that I love now. Like it being my favorite now, I'm just like, it's a worker placement game. It's almost. It's just kind of basic. You know, it's, it's very, like set collection. very generic. Yeah. Yeah. It's just everywhere. And a lot of people do it. And, and whether or not a game is good is not reliant on the worker placement. 
does it, the worker placement isn't what makes the game good. It's everything else that's involved with it. I particularly Agreed. like, I really like dice worker placement though, because I think rolling yep. your dice and then having like limited choices about where you can place your dice. I think that's really interesting. Um, and still kind of fresh and new, you know, but some of my favorite games, um, you know, the Shem Phillips games, those are all worker placement and I love those games. So I still love worker placement games. It's just that making a worker placement game doesn't mean I'm going to love it. Agreed. I think what Shem Phillips does though, um, better than most is he takes the concept of worker placement and changes it ever so slightly in his, in his games, yeah. which I think is cool. So I got a chance to demo a game at Origins called Forges of Ravenshire. And this game, if Coimbra and Raiders of the North Sea had a child, it would be this game. And I was so excited about it because it, it used dice as workers for various things. So the, the main thing is you have a set of dice, you roll the dice, and then based on the pip value, you can put them at different worker spots on the main board and they'll give you resources, right? Basic. Mm-hmm. You know, some spots are, you know, you want higher numbers, other spots you want lower numbers. That's not terribly interesting. All right, whatever. I mean, you've seen it before. Roll a six, get three wood. Roll one, get three gems. Cool. But the interesting thing is, so you place a die and then you're doing the Raiders of the North Sea aspect where you're pulling a die. And that die that you pull matters with the pip value because you get to activate that spot again. So, you know, the if, you, if it was another six on the wood spot, you can get another three wood. So one on the gem spot, you can get another three gems. Cool. But the color of the die that you bring back can activate one of the three guilds that you have on your player board. So those guilds will have just, you know, actions that you can take or they'll give you something. So you activate the guild, you get some stuff. And I really like that portion of it. But then they took it one step further because then in the phase after the, the placement of workers, the die you brought back, the color no longer matters. Because you've already activated your gills, but the pip value matters a second time because now you can take actions on your player board. And depending on what those pip values are, you can do the different actions on your player board. I really like that because it lends itself to some really interesting choices. So it takes the concept of worker placement and these like dices workers and just kind of, you know, stretches a little bit further than just the basic stuff. Yeah, that sounds really, really good. I'm really excited about that game. For me, it was the game of the con that I wanted to play that I couldn't. Um, one of the guys from our local game store, Jeff, he's like, hey, Bob, you should check out that game. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, it's good. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. And I sat down, I demoed it, and I went up to him. I was like, hey, did you guys, um, are you guys getting this in? Because I want <laughs> like, I want a copy. <laughs> I had We had some of our friends check it out. They pre-ordered it. You can pre-order it right now. It's not available for retail just yet, but there's like... The things that you're doing and you're gathering, it's just basic resource, you know, collection and then you're being able to forge stuff. But what you're doing with those dice and those worker spots is just so interesting because there's so many little pieces you got to think about. Yeah, I'm in. It sounds fun. All right. That's all I have for the mechanics. Did I miss any of your favorite ones, Bob? Oh, I'm sure you did. Always miss something. All right. Well, thanks for listening to our shenanigans. Join us next week. Please check, uh, help us out by giving us a review and liking us on Instagram or Facebook. And send us any comments or questions to boardgameshenanigans at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. <laughs>